Hey y'all. How's it going? How's it going? How's it going? We're doing well. Good. Uh, it's fun to be here at RUF. Uh, I don't know if Nick said this or not. I was a RUF campus minister myself when I was much younger. Um, at a small school in Virginia. We did that seven years. It was a great time of ministry and life for us and our family. And then uh, we moved to Milwaukee here, um, let's see, about over five years ago now to help start uh, this church here, uh, just a couple blocks away. And um, yeah, as Nick said, uh, we're in the pastor there, and tonight uh, we're going to continue on this series that he's been doing on the parables. I love the parables. They're probably my favorite, like, genre uh, in the Gospels, maybe the New Testament. Um, they're just great stories. And I think Nick's probably, I'm assuming he's done this to kind of explain what a parable is, but I've got this hopefully helpful little pithy idea about what a parable is when Jesus tells a parable, right, in most of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, Jesus will use these parables to make points, to teach points, right? And a parable is really nothing other than this. It's a teaching device um, that expresses a direct truth, right? Something about God, something about us, something about God's word, God's kingdom more often than not, which is what's going to come up tonight. So it expresses a direct truth in an indirect way. So a story, um, something interesting that Jesus may have just observed about life. Usually it's in the form of a story. That's what a parable does, and that's what we're going to be looking at here tonight. And what you've been doing this whole um, semester. One of the things that parables do also as Jesus gives them is they always often, uh, most of the time, 99% of the time, have some kind of like hook or unexpected turn at the end, which is meant to call the listener, in this case it's you and I here tonight, and in that case when he was first telling it, his audience that he was with, it's meant to have them kind of stop in their tracks and go, oh, okay, wow, he actually expects me to like make a decision about something here or, or change the way I think about this whole subject that he's talking about. So again, we're going to see that come through in this uh, passage here tonight. So we're going to look at um, Luke 14. I think it's, behind, is it up there? No, it's on your handout. There you go. Oh, it's there too. Wow, nice. Am I, am I blocking it? Yeah, you're good. Uh, so Luke 14, and I'm going to look at um, just a few verses here, 12 through 24. Let me set kind of the stage of what's happening here. Uh, in this whole chapter, I'm not going to read the first 11 verses, but um, what's happened here is that on a Sabbath, the most important day of the week, certainly the most important day of the Jewish uh, week, Saturday, Jesus gets invited to a man's house uh, for a big dinner, a, a Pharisee. He's one of the kind of really important guys. It would basically be going to like a, a city council member's uh, house, or maybe like the provost or dean of UWM or something like It's a big deal to go to their house. They're really important people. He gets invited to go. There's a man there who's crippled, and Jesus heals him on a Sabbath. Big no-no. and -no. eh, Don't do that, Jesus. He's already ruffling some feathers there. Then, on top of that, he tells another parable, which we're not looking at here, about where people should sit in places of prominence. And that kind of ruffles some feathers also. So Jesus is on a roll here, right? Let me pick up here in verse 12, and we're going to read from here. And he, that is Jesus, said also to the man who had invited him, the Pharisee, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Now, granted, keep in mind, 
this would have been everybody that would have been at this meal, right? So Jesus is just like rolling with offending people. Um, do you not invite these people, lest, um, lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And when one of those who reclined at table heard him say these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. That's one of the listeners, right? But Jesus said to him, this man, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. And so the servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for um, giving us this opportunity to gather here to rest for just a few moments out of the day to consider your word, consider the words of Jesus, consider what it is that he would have us to know about who you are and all of your goodness and glory, as we just sang, that you are a good, good father. You're full of grace and mercy and truth and love. And so I pray that you would um, bless us as we look together at this great parable. And um, may we be changed by it from the inside out. We pray this in Christ's name. So here's what I want to do tonight. Here's what I hope we'll see from uh, this parable that we're going to look at. Um, it's a really beautiful story with a lot of um, ins and outs to it. But I think the main gist of it is this, is that uh, the invitation to enter into the banquet feast of the kingdom of God, really another word for saying God's eternal kingdom, right? The kingdom of God. The invitation to that is open to all, but it's not open-ended. It's open to all, but it's not open-ended. And therefore... We need to heed at once this call to the kingdom and lay aside all of our excuses and all of our delays. So it's open to all, but it's not open-ended, and therefore we need to heed the call to come at once. You probably noticed in this parable there's a lot of different characters that are floating around here, the people that are at the meal with Jesus in person, and then the people that he tells the parable about. But we want to do three things as we look at um, this parable tonight. Kind of look at three different groups um, in turn, we're going to talk about the insiders. We're going to talk about next the outsiders, and then we're going to talk about the outcast. Um, one of the things that's really important to know, we're going to talk about some of the background, the context of what was going on here, because some of the background is really important for us to make sense of this parable. And the reason we're using that language of insiders, outsiders, outcasts, is because when Jesus arrived on the scene 2,000 years ago, the Judaism, the religion that he stepped into, was really, really, really concerned about this. Who was in and who was out? 
And what made you in and what made you out? What made you an insider in God's kingdom and God's economy? And what made you an outsider? And so as Jesus is apt to do, Nick's probably been talking about this a lot this semester, he's going to take that whole idea, put it in the blender, hit puree, pour out something totally different, right? That he's going to turn everything on its head. And we're going to see that as we look at this tonight. So let's look at this first group of invitees to this banquet that's in this parable, the, the insiders. And this is the bulk of our passage here, verses 16 to 20. And he spends the majority of his time on this group, Jesus does, for good reason. And the main reason he spends the majority of time on them is because they were the main offenders. These are the people who had entered into a highly suspect and very insulting practice, which was to be invited to an important meal, a banquet, party, a festival like this, we're going to talk about in just a minute how these, these people had actually already said yes. We'll explain that in a second. And then to renege on that, to back away, to cut their response, to make an RFCP, and then to say, mm, thanks but no thanks. Highly, highly offensive. And there's a big reason for that, and we're going to talk about why that matters and why Jesus spends so much time talking about them, right? Part of the reason this is important because think about throwing a party 2,000 years ago versus today. Right? In the same way, one of the things that's the same, when you have a party today, or you throw a banquet, or you throw a feast, or you invite people over, right? the two big questions that occupy your mind are, who am I going to invite, and are they going to come? And that was the same for this master of the banquet here. right? Who am I going to invite, and are they going to come? But it, what's different is that you don't just like get on social media, Snapchat, we were talking earlier about snapping people, and Instagram, and all that. Right? This, none of that exists, obviously. So if you do this, you plan extensively. Think, think more, not like your friends getting together for some Papa John's. It is a wedding feast, right? Somebody that you know getting married. Months, weeks of planning, of preparation, of sending out handwritten invitations or face-to-face -face invitations, right? All the preparation. You would need to know how many people are coming because you need to know what animals to actually kill to serve for the food, how much wine to have, how many servants to have on call. I mean, all the stuff that goes into this. Just to give you a picture of how big of a deal this was, the word that we translate here, a great banquet, right? It says, um, a man gave a great feast and a great banquet. The word that we translate great literally is mega. So in the Greek, this is a mega banquet. Like, this is a big deal, right? So this is a massive deal. And these people, the first invitees, the insiders, have actually said no to it. And there's a scandal to that. Again, because it was a big deal to even throw this party, and they, for their part, begin to make up all kinds of excuses for why they can't come, right? The master of the feast, rather than receiving uh, all these great um, yeses and RSVPs, positive with joyful anticipation, he begins to get all of these rejections, right? Nope, can't come, not going to make it, sorry. Again, imagine for a minute uh, an engaged couple that um, wants to celebrate uh, their engagement, their upcoming wedding. So they get engaged, they've got a date picked, and they make um, a Facebook event for the wedding, and they're hoping that people will reply on their Facebook event, yes, I'm coming to the wedding, sorry I can't make it, whatever. And they get all these yeses on the Facebook page. And then that's the first step, right? Then they would send out a more formal invitation, right? They send out the formal invitation. You get the little card when you open a wedding invitation. It says, check that you're going to come or know that you're not going to come. And they imagine getting now, in written form, all of these no's. All of these no's decline with regret. 
from people who on the Facebook page had said yes. That's a little bit of a picture of what would have been happening here, right? People who would have been actually invited ahead of time, the second time they go out, I keep looking back because I think the passage is behind me, but it's not, but I have it coming here. People who would have already been invited, they're re-invited, thank you. They're <laughs> re-invited, and not even re-invited. This is the confirmation, right? Hey, you said yes already, are you going to come? And they start giving all these excuses. So let's look just for a few minutes at the excuses that they give, right? There's three different excuses that Jesus names. Um, the first one in verse 18 is this. Hey, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And, and maybe at first glance, if we read through it kind of quickly, you're like, oh, okay, I can, I can kind of see that. But if we pause for a minute and we camp out on it, we begin to kind of peel back the layers. You're like, wait, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And, and here's why, right? Because again, Think about when Jesus' day and age, it's called, Israel's called, the Holy Land for a reason. The land itself is actually holy. You don't dare buy land without looking at it, without going to it. Just like you wouldn't buy a house today without seeing it or walking through it or inspecting it, right? If the land in that day not only is holy, it's also arid, it's dry. So you have to know where the wells are, you have to know where the streams are, you have to know, can I actually plant crops here? It's foolish for someone to say, I've bought a field, oh, and by the way, now I have to go out and inspect it. Jesus is saying here, eh, terrible excuse. Look at the second one, verse 19. I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them, please have me excused. Again, you know, maybe you're like, okay, he's got some business things he's got to work out. You know, maybe he can skip out on the party. But, again, you can pull back the layers on this, scratch below the surface you see, just like the first one buying the land, it's pretty terrible. It doesn't hold any water, right? Again, like buying land, you don't go buy oxen, a massive investment in that day, without first inspecting it. And so here's how that would have happened in Jesus' day, right? Imagine, again, free Craigslist, but if this were on Craigslist, you know, you see a couple oxen for sale on Craigslist, you call the guy, hey, can I come over and test drive the oxen, right? And the owner says, yeah, sure, I'm around on Sunday, come by on Sunday. You go by on Sunday, you test drive the oxen, and then you buy the oxen. It's just kind of common sense, right? But this guy's done it backwards, and he says, I bought them first, now I'm going to go examine them. You can see how paltry that excuse is. Third one, the third guy says this in verse 20, hey, I've married a wife, therefore I can't come. Now, this would be the one where you're kind of like, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe, you know, they're newlyweds, they just want to have a, you know, Netflix and chill night at home kind of thing. But, think about this. They're not going to have any other parties to go to because in a village like this, that village would not be able to sustain multiple large feasts at once. He already had his moment in the sun with his wife at their party, and probably this man would have been invited to that and attended. And now they're invited to come to his, and they say, no, we're not going to come. Not only that, this guy's kind of a numbskull. They can testify this. He's the newlywed in the room. He clearly doesn't know that new wives are obviously going to go to the party. Like, why would I not want to go to the party? So he doesn't know his wife very well yet at this moment. Talk to Nick about that after, or you have to want to know more about that. Or Maddie. So this is this first group here, the invitees. These are the insiders. Let me, before we move to the next group, let me give you a few things that we need to think about, some lessons from this, this first group. These were the people in the know. Right? These were the people in the know. They're called the insiders. And they would have been the ones who religiously, spiritually, socially, 
economically. They would have had all their ducks in a row. They would have had all their stuff worked out, everything in order. And yet, because of their wrong understanding of who God is, they wrongly assumed that, of course, things are going to be fine if they don't show up at the party. It's going to be fine. Like, why would that be a big deal for me not to come? Because they misunderstand and they fail to appreciate the nature of this person who's having the feast. And I don't know if Nick has said this or not, I'm assuming he has, that in many of these parables there's this figure who tends to be kind of what we would call the God figure, right? The one who represents either Jesus or the Father or kind of the God figure. And that's important. We're going to come back to that in just a minute towards the end here. But these people misunderstand who he is in his very nature, right? Their thinking is going to be one of two things. If I don't come, either the banquet's going to be canceled or he'll just have some empty spots. No big deal. But what they don't understand is that this master of the banquet insists upon having a full house. They're taking his grace for granted. They're presuming upon his goodness and his generosity and his grace and saying, well, hey, it's not a big deal. We've got it all figured out. We'll be fine if we don't go to this. These were the religious leaders, the religious insiders, the people who, again, had all their spiritual boxes checked, everything figured out for themselves. They had all the answers. And Jesus is saying, you've got it actually all wrong. They begin to make excuses about why they can't come. Now, here's the thing. I don't know many of you, probably hardly at all, but, but I can say, I've been in ministry long enough, and I've lived life long enough, that more than likely there may be some insiders here tonight. And that's not me judging you, that's me just simply saying, there may be those of you who, like these people, are presuming upon the grace of God and thinking, God's going to take care of me. I don't need to worry about what he's asking of me. I don't need to worry about the things he's, he's desiring of me. It's going to be fine. If I don't show up and do the things he's asking me to do and requiring of me, and maybe even expecting of me, it's still going to be fine. It's all going to work out in the end. Let me give you a concrete, tangible example of what this may look like and translate to in our lives today. We have opportunity every week to come to a feast like this. It's called church. Now, there's not food like this, but there is the Lord's Supper. There may not be, you know, a magnificent spread of everything that we can imagine. There may not be even all of our friends and people that we like there, but it is something that God invites us to, to be with him and to celebrate with him every week. And just think for a moment and pause, how good are our excuses for not showing up in that situation on a Sunday morning? Are they valid enough? Do they end up looking like some of these here? Again, I'm not saying that to cast judgment. I'm, giving that, I'm saying that how you think about how you live in light of this God who is so gracious, who's so giving, who gives more and more and more of himself, who sets a table like this, and then we make excuses for not coming. There's the insiders, and then secondly, there's the outcasts. In verses 21 and 22, if you've got your hand out there. All right, these are the outcasts. These are the, the outcasts of society, right? Um, he gets angry that these people have um, decided to turn down his invitation, so he turns his, his attention to a second group uh, of another group of attendees, and these are the ones who are really what we call the outcasts. And notice two things about what he says. He tells his servant first where to go. He tells him where to go. He says, go to the streets and the lanes of the city. Look, just like Milwaukee, just like other big cities here, right, the people who are wealthy have land. If you've been up to River Hills... That's a great example of that, right? People who are wealthy have land. 
People who tend to be poor and impoverished and oppressed, they don't have land. So where do they live? They live in the city. They live on crowded and cramped streets. They live in Section 8 housing. They live in the shanties and the other places of the city where they can't afford. And he's saying, this is where you need to go. Go find these people in these neighborhoods of this city. So secondly, he not only tells them where to go, he tells them who to invite. Now this is where things get really interesting. Notice the language that the master uses here. You notice his descriptive language? This is who you invite, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. These are the four exact descriptions that Jesus has just given to the host about who you should invite to a feast. And now he tells a parable and a story where the master of that feast, unlike the one where he is sitting right now, hasn't done. He's intentionally throwing gasoline on the fire here. He's doing this on purpose. It's been said before, one commentator said this, that uh, the poor don't get invited to fancy banquets. The crippled don't get married. The blind are unable to examine fields for themselves, and the lame are unable to test oxen. But all these people are invited to this man's banquet now, at this time. These are the, the outcasts. And what do we need to learn about this group? What kind of lessons do they have for us? Well, they're the social outcast of the people of Israel, and what we just said about them, how Jesus describes them is true, right? They are the poor. They're the lame. They're the blind. They're the crippled. They were the outcasts socially as well as religiously uh, in that society in that day and age. Uh, if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls that came out of um, uh, Israel uh, from a community that was uh, existing around the time of Jesus, so around 2,000 years ago, this community that existed near the Dead Sea, it was a very isolated and extremely uh, rigorous group of Jewish men who were waiting for uh, a deliverer, a Messiah. And the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in the 1940s are a lot of their writings. A lot of it is the Bible, but a lot of it is their own community's writings about what they believed. And, and this comes right out of, this quote I'm going to give you comes right out of their writings from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they said this, that no one was allowed into the feast of the Messiah, that's the Savior, that's the King, who was this, smitten in his flesh, or paralyzed in his feet, or hands, or lame, or blind, or deaf, or dumb, or smitten in his flesh with a visible blemish. So you actually have another society writing that these people cannot be allowed into this feast because their belief was that if they had those things, they were impure and they were unholy, and they had done something to earn or to deserve that. But we also need to notice here that the Master himself and his act of kindness has a lot to teach us. Because he invites these social outcasts at great cost to him. Again, in that day and age, in that society, if he doesn't have his house full of the wealthy, of the rich, of the notable, and instead he fills it with the poor, the lame, the blind, and the crippled, he himself then immediately becomes an outcast. Because word's going to spread quickly that this guy is inviting other people in his home <clears throat> who are the total... Uh, refuse of the world and of the city, right? So then why would I want to have anything to do with this guy if he's having these types of people into his home? I think there's some important things for us to think about when we think about our own lives for that, right? Maybe a, a ministry like RUF or the churches that we attend, is there room for people like that in these groups? Whether it's the ministry of RUF or maybe the church that you're at. So ask yourself some of those good questions, right? Is there room for the outcast? where you are? 
How can a group like RUF make room for those outcasts? Here's a question to consider as well. Do you even know who the outcasts are at UWM? Can you tell just by looking at them? Are you building relationships with people who qualify as that? Who don't think like you do, don't dress like you do, don't talk like you do? What about special needs people? People who are artistic or who are actually mentally actually disabled, like they cannot function on their own. In the Christian worldview, is there room for people like that in our communities? Right? Jesus is giving a perfect example of saying, hey, in God's kingdom, in God's economy, there's totally room for those people. And we should ask those questions about the churches that we were at as well. There, is there room for minorities, the physically disabled, the elderly? Is there room for those people who wouldn't fit the mold of what constitutes cool or well put together or religiously savvy? Jesus is clearly giving examples here of where these people should fit in. One more thing before we move on to that last group there. This first group of invitees, right, the uh, insiders would have said, hey, we've got our act together. We're qualified to be a part of this feast. I don't know why this guy's up in arms about us saying no to his invitation. The second group, the outcasts, would have also known as well that they were totally unqualified to be a part of this man's feast. And yet here they are, invited, welcomed, given a place of honor, given a place at the table. And I want to ask you here tonight, is that you? Do you feel that? Do you feel like you are the outcast? That you're totally disqualified to have a place at Jesus' table? Maybe that's you tonight. But these are the very people, though, that Jesus gave his life for, that he lived his life for, that he dined with, that he ate with, the people who didn't have their spiritual act together, the people who were broken, the people whose sin had caused great harm in other people's lives, the people who had experienced in their own lives the sin of someone else, the people who have been told, you cannot make it, your sin is too great, you are too broken, and you're too messed up. These are the people that are coming into Jesus' feast and into his kingdom. There's some real hope and encouragement for us. These are the outcasts. Lastly, this third group here, third group of invitees, these are the outsiders. Look at verse 23, right? The servant has already gone out. He's got in the outcast, and the master said to the servant, go to the highways, go to the hedges, compel people to come in, bring them in that my house might be full. So who are these people that have to be then compelled to come into the owner, the master's house? Well, we're not given great description here, but one of the things we can say about them is the language here, the highways and the hedges. That's code language essentially for the far, far, far outsiders, the people that weren't Jewish, the people that would have been Romans or pagans or Africans perhaps, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the people who have no concept of Israel's history or religion or faith. The vagabonds, the hobos, the homeless, the people who literally have been going from town to town, trying to find a meal, trying to find a place to sleep for the night. And the master is now saying, go out and find these people and compel them to come in. That's a strong word there. He's urging them with strong language to compel them, saying, I need you to come into my house. I want you to come into my house. I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. And you can imagine, probably, I hope you can, how skeptical those people would have been. 
of getting that invitation. Wait, wait, wait. Off the street, like you're going to invite me into your beautiful home and give me amazing food and you don't even know me and I don't even know your name and I'm here at your table and wait, what's the deal? What's the catch, right? Where's the guy filming this on his phone that's about to go viral, you know, social media in 30 minutes? How's this all going to fall apart? You can see how they would be thinking this, right? But the master says, no, 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 no. Come. Come into my house. All is ready. I want you to dine with me. Again, some important things for us to think about from this last group. Once more, just as we did with the outcasts, so we do with the outsiders, totally unqualified. Those who are totally unqualified spiritually are the ones who get invited to come into the master's house for the feast. Mark Twain once said, heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would be left out and your dog would make it in. <laughs> Think about that for a second. Look, the grace and the generosity of the master is, is almost too good to be true, right? That's why these people have to be compelled to come in. But this can't be true. How is it that this person who I don't know is inviting me to come in and to dine and enjoy, enjoy this incredible feast? That's why they must be compelled to come in. And this is where I think the rubber meets the road for us who are here tonight who are Christians because in my life and in my ministry, I struggle with this because I rarely have conversations with people where I'm having to help them understand that actually, no, 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 this is, this is good. You think it's too good to be true and they're saying to me in return, no, 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 that can't be true, that that God is like that. That he's so gracious, so loving, so welcoming, so kind. More often than not, I feel like I'm trying to twist their arm because they're looking at me and going, I don't want anything to do with your God. This Jesus you're talking about. Everything I see on the news, everything I see in politics, everything I see about all these people in the name of religion doing these horrible things, why would I want anything to do with that? Can we get back to a picture like this where we actually are having conversations with people about Christianity and the faith, and they're going, that sounds too good to be true, and you're going, yeah, 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 it is. Come and let me tell you about it. I'll tell you all about it. I think if we're going to get to that place, we have to first understand the compelling message, the gospel, the center of the universe that God is for us in Christ. That's a really compelling message. But we ourselves, like the messenger here, the servant, we have to be compelling also. The message is compelling, but the messenger needs to be compelling also. Listen, let me give you an example. If you come to me and talk to me about the greatest restaurant ever opened in any city anywhere, or the next Martin Scorsese film that's going to win 10,000 Academy Awards, or you know, the greatest restaurant, whatever, and you tell it to me in a totally unconvincing, uncompelling way, I'm just not going to go check it out. Because you're not convincing me of this. Right? It might be great, it might be awesome, but you're not convincing me. So we need to revisit how it is that we as Christians are offering a compelling message about this thing called Christianity. In the 1740s, a man named George Whitfield, who was an English minister, came to America for the first time. And he met another American, born here, who is one of our founding fathers, a guy named Ben Franklin. You probably know that name. And George Whitfield and Ben Franklin became good friends. Uh, and Ben Franklin was not a Christian, did not convert, never became a Christian, but he ended up striking out this really deep friendship with George Whitfield over many years, and he heard him preach over many years. He would go listen to him. Every time he was in the States, he would go and listen to Whitfield. 
And at one point, one of uh, Franklin's good friends finally kind of confronted him and said, hey, why are you going to listen to this guy? You don't believe a word of what he says. Why are you going? And Franklin's response was this, essentially. Yeah, you're right. I don't believe uh, a word of what this guy's saying. But I know that he believes every single word of it. And I can't help but go listen to him because of that. That's what it means to bring a compelling message. The messenger here compels people to come into the kingdom. Let me end with this. The master's house shall be filled. And he's not going to have it any other way, right? And this is the point of Jesus telling this parable. And at this point, when he gets to the end, because of everything that's come before that we kind of began with, right, the tension is weighty. It's palpable, right? The awkwardness in the room at that moment of what's happening here as Jesus has kind of laid everyone bare and kind of exposed the hypocrisy here. But here's where the twist comes. Remember I said parables usually have a twist. Here's where it comes. And this is where our English translation doesn't quite do justice. There's a lot of question and debate about where does the parable end? Does it end in verse 23? Or does the parable end in verse 24? Now, I'm going to humbly submit to you that I think the parable ends in verse 23. And the reason for that is this, because in the original language, and our English translations will have footnotes that say this, the you, for I tell you, is plural. It's Jesus saying, y'all. I'm from Georgia, so I can say that. The master of the banquet has been talking singularly to a servant. And now he says, for I tell y'all, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. you see what's happening there? Jesus finishes the parable in verse 23, and then he basically says this, hold my beer. All of y'all who were invited shall not taste my banquet. That's a mic drop. Why is he doing that? Because he's placing himself as the king of the universe in his rightful place. He alone determines the metrics for who's in and who's out. And guess what? It's none of what we think it is. It's not how good you are. It's not how shiny you are. It's not having your act together. It's not all your accomplishments. It's not your spiritual resume. It's not your school resume. It is only what he says it is, which is only this, grace. And here's the deal. This is where it gets better. This tonight is actually Jesus' invitation to all of you to come and be a part of his kingdom, to come and dine at his feast, to come and dine at his table. But here's the thing. We can't delay. We can't give any excuses. None of them are going to stand up under the weight of what he's offering. We can't say, hey, let me check back with you in half an hour. Let me check back with you later. We can't wait two more weeks, we can't wait two more years. Nothing is promised to us. I have a friend who was in a band uh, in Portland, and they never really made it super big, but they made it kind of big. They opened for some other bigger acts on the West Coast. He lived here for a while in Milwaukee, then he moved to Denver. Um, he's one of those really cool guys who just hops around to cool cities and then kind of does whatever. But um, he said to me one time, we were talking about shows and concerts, we were at another show here, and he said, you know what always got me about playing a gig? And I was like, no, I don't know, because I'm not in the band, so tell me what got you about <laughs> playing gigs. He said, you know, when people would be like, call me and text me the day of, and be like, man, can you get me in tonight? He'd be like, no. 
you should have called me like two weeks ago. In the heat of the moment, when the moment is now, I can't do that for you. And so what's happening here is the heat of the moment, when that comes, it's going to be too late to have your excuse to delay. The invitation is for you right now. Let me say this as well. If you're here and you have already actually RSVP'd to this banquet, if you say that you are a Christian, you've RSVP'd to that. I just want us to think about what it would look like for us to be people like this servant who go out and compel others to come in. Who go out and want to share this message of this great feast. You guys have a great opportunity on this campus. right? This is what the Great Commission is all about, to make disciples of all people, of all nations. Consider that the message, that, what it is that you are actually sharing. Is it compelling? Are you even compelling in what you're sharing? I hope that you are. The master of the feast will insist that his house will be filled. He's going to fill it. We get to have a hand in that. And I hope and I pray that all of us who follow him would want to be a part of what he's doing in that. Let me pray for us. We'll be done. Our God and our Father, thank you for 